Hi everyone, thanks for tuning in. You may have noticed this is the first time we've posted an episode for a while. Overseas moves and various other issues have got in the way, but we were hoping to come back with a few changes late this year. This episode is one we actually recorded about 12 months ago now, so please keep that in mind when listening. Also, since recording, Mark Heriot has left OSL. We still think the episode provides some really interesting perspectives on the digital asset space, and that's why we've made some edits ready for release. We hope you enjoy and see you again very soon. Welcome back to the Alpha Females Invest podcast. We bring diversified perspectives from the buy and sell side of the finance world. As usual, any information discussed in this podcast is not financial advice. All opinions reflect those of the individuals, and this podcast is for educational purposes only. You should always read the PDS and talk to a financial advisor who can consider your personal circumstances before you invest. Today on the show, we have Mark Hiriot, who is Head of Business Development and Sales for OSL in Australia. OSL is the world's first insured and SFC licensed digital asset platform, providing prime brokerage, custody, exchange and SaaS services for institutional clients and professional investors. Mark has had an extremely interesting and diversified career and prior to OSL had 15 years experience in trading, sales and structuring equity derivatives at large investment banks. Most recently, he was head of flow derivative sales at Morgan Stanley in Hong Kong before moving back to Australia in late 2020 to build the structured solutions business focusing on domestic asset owners. Prior to that, he traded equity derivatives for JP Morgan in Sydney and worked on the structuring and sales desk in both Hong Kong and London. Welcome to the show, Mark. Thanks for having me. Pleasure to be here. We are very excited for today's episode and to help break down some of the barriers around understanding crypto. But before we do kick off, I would love to ask you, Mark, what is your most embarrassing career moment? Yeah, right. No, thanks so much. I've probably had a few. If you've been in investment banking as long as I had, um, yeah, there's probably a few. The ones that really stick out are the ones where you make your big first trading error. It usually happens probably in the first six months and you get that sick feeling in your stomach. And they're good lessons to learn early on. But um, probably the, the best embarrassing ones is probably the disco shirt or the concept of the disco shirt. I'm not sure if you're familiar with that one. <laughs> I actually haven't heard of that phrase. So please do elaborate. Yeah, sure. So being usually a single male in finance, you know, you have to have your shirts and your suits ready. And probably being a single male like myself was at that time in my 20s, just completely disorganized. So you have all your shirts ready and what would happen is you get to the Friday and then you run out of shirts or your work shirt. So you reach to the back of the cupboard and there's the one there that's too big, too small, (laughs) flower print, purple, black silk. So I've probably worn all of those into the office at some point. Uh, Yeah. And everyone's like, yeah, Harriet's got his disco shirt on. So I'd probably say that's happened many times, but yeah, the disco shirt's probably up there for me. I really do wish I had been there to see some of those disco shirts. I'm definitely going to keep an eye on people's Friday outfits now. Exactly. So let's start with simple. What is a digital asset? Does it include crypto, Bitcoin, and those other common phrases that we often hear about? Yeah, sure. It's a good question to start with. Yeah, I think a digital asset is basically anything that has some sort of identifiable value and a claim on of ownership. But this thing is purely electronic, right? So it could be Bitcoin, as you said, it could be an NFT of a 
a monkey or a, you know whatever else or it could be your favorite sword in your computer game that you're playing so the criteria i kind of look at and to be fair like this is an ever-evolving space and we're really new but the way i like to personally look at it is it electronic does it exist in the digital realm not in real life does it have some value and is there a clear way to define the ownership so that separates it from something digital so you know you can have something digital but it's not a digital asset so before nfts came along maybe your profile pic on facebook that's something digital but it doesn't really have a value to it right so yeah bitcoin ethereum all these other cryptocurrencies they're all digital assets and osl that's kind of what we do we're, we're a platform that allows people to access these digital assets so given they're in the digital world as you said and it has to have value but how do you frame that value proposition some people do think that it's, you know, a store of wealth or a payment, but what actual value do the digital assets hold? Yeah, so digital assets is a very, very broad term, and it does encompass all those things you described, like cryptocurrencies, NFTs, security tokens, or anything else that, I guess, like, you know, the hasn't come along or been developed yet. So each of those different sort of uh, assets in themselves can be have their own sort of value proposition. So Bitcoin typically is seen as a store of value, a mechanism to have borderless um, payments, pristine collateral. Some people think of that as well. Ethereum, people think is like the world's internet computer and, you know, and all the applications that run on that. So that has a value, you know, that network in itself. NFTs and the value of that is effectively digital property rights. So if NFTs are probably the first time you've enabled anyone to have sort of digital property rights as opposed to property rights typically have been like a legal construct in the real world. So an NFT is a way of having that construct electronically. And so the first iteration of that is monkey pictures or crypto punks or these funny NFTs that are going around. And, you know, there's great communities around all that stuff, but really it's that way of having a digital property right, which sets it apart. There's also things like security tokens. So that, that's the kind of a, a new emerging in industry. So a security token is kind of like a, electronic digital tokenized equity for want for a better word and these can be used for you know fund units or can give you like an economic exposure to a company just like an equity would so that's going to be a hot area as well over the next few years security tokens so you know as i said we're pretty early all these kind of digital assets will continue to evolve and there'll be new methods of economic value and incentives that follow them so i think that's the sort of sets the scene and then talking about how people invest in them like you are seeing a great deal of investment in this space and not only in the sort of the publicly traded tokens that you hear about, but on sort of on the private pre-IPO space, there's probably last year's probably $35 billion worth of sort of private equity slash VC style investment in this space. So, and that was probably greater than the sum of the previous 10 years. So like people are starting to see the value proposition in, in all these different things and it is a spectrum of things. And this is, this is sort of a trend that's continued to grow. <laughs> We're on the same page there about the trend continuing to grow. And that's that about the pre-IPO capital markets is super interesting and just goes to show how quickly this is becoming at the forefront of both retail and institutional investor minds. But I guess on the flip side of that, what are the key risks associated with digital assets? Sometimes you hear of these horror stories about people unable to offload their asset or maybe it's been stolen or lost given that the regulation really isn't as strict as other types of asset classes. Is that a misconception or are those risks actually still real? I think, yeah. I think the first thing you'd always say is like any investment carries risk and 
full disclaimer, I'm not giving any investment advice, and nor are you, I'm sure. But, you know, the digital asset space is on the bleeding edge of, like, technology at the moment. And people are building things that invariably might break because they're trying something new, right? They're trying to do something new that's never been done before. You know, and we saw that recently with the collapse or the, you know, the falling of terror ecosystem. You know, it was trying to do something no one had really done before like that in that sense and and it grew too fast and it was unsustainable and it failed but all these kind of new innovations that they are new innovations which kind of makes it exciting but very does carry risk i'd sort of equate it to investing in like a small cap or a high growth kind of tmt sector in the equity space where you know you see them what's the term that people have the internet companies with no revenue there's like a basket all this kind of stuff you know it's like you have all these high growth stuff people piling they're bleeding money to try and get the business up and running and they hope they you know get up to something unprofitable tech that sort of thing you know it's, it's the same kind of thing you know it's so i'd think of it like that and with any investment you never put in more than you could afford to lose and that goes without saying whether that's equities or crypto or anything else but you've touched on the point there regulatory you know reform and it's coming and osl you know we set up i wasn't there but as a business we were set up purely with the regulatory mindset from the ground up. That was the forefront of our founders' minds. It was to be able to create a crypto platform that was regulated, that can act or deal in a regulated world and face regulated counterparts. So that you know, that's why the business exists. So we're pioneers, I'd say, in, the, in that regulatory space. You know, We were one of the first crypto firms to be listed on our main board sort of, of a public equity market. We have a listing in Hong Kong. We want you know, the first crypto firms to be big four audited. And so people like us are trying to bring the standards up. There is going to be regulatory reform. Invariably, there's going to be situations with this new technology where you know investors, unfortunately, will lose money or projects will go down. But all we can do is try and provide those sort of safeguards around it. So give people full disclosure, vet the projects that we list on our platform and sort of education, really. I think that's an interesting point, and I do really want to dive into the OSL platform and how it works in a bit. But perhaps before we do, and I think this really ties into the whole concept of regulation, but the user experience in this asset class is often described as confusing because there are so many different types of digital assets, and it's hard to navigate that sometimes. So from both your perspective and OSL's perspective, how are you breaking down that information barrier, and what are some of the easiest ways to get an investor's head around this? Yeah, no, it's a, it's a good question. I think there's a couple of things. If you're not a crypto native, it can be quite daunting coming into the space. There's like a, a steep learning curve. And even when you're inside crypto, people often say like the final boss of crypto or you know the thing that's going to enable mainstream adoption is going to be the UI UX problem. What I mean by that, you know, if you're dealing with these protocols, you're interacting on chain with wallets and wallet explorers and all this kind of thing, and whether it's DeFi, whatever it might be, it can be quite daunting. And so even something like MetaMask, which is typically like the, the wallet and the interface in which you interact with like the Ethereum network or ecosystem, you know, that's become an industry standard, but you'd never get like my mum or my nan using MetaMask, right? And so enable to um for crypto to have its mainstream adoption moment i think it needs to get to a point where and not just crypto but digital assets in general where people are using them and they're interacting with them and they're finding value but they not necessarily know that they're using it you know what i mean so that's it's been sort of abstracted away and i think once we get to that space point in time i think that will sort of 
obviously there's other things that need to fall in place like regulation etc and and the macro the larger macro sort of environment however i think that's going to be the point where we reach the tipping point and things go mainstream and then yeah as you say there's so many different tokens there's so many new projects and it's kind of exciting for me there's the investment side but there's also like the um it's like a, a netflix series that's continuously on all the time especially if you hook yourself into crypto twitter there's just new stuff happening every day there's some scandals there's gossip there's exciting breakthroughs there's everything and so that's for me and i'm sure a lot of other people involved in the space it's kind of it's taken over their financial piece it's taken over their sort of tech part of their mind and now it's taken over their sort of like the media consumption part because there's so much interesting stuff happening all the time like a, a day in crypto is like a month in the regular world yeah there's always new stuff happening great thanks mark so i would love if you could please tell us a little bit about osl and how the platform works yeah thanks we're one of the original crypto firms you know we started in asia and we're probably regarded as a you know a leader in the regulatory compliant security and transparent end of the market so two-thirds or two half three of our founders are actually aussie Many of our senior executives and heads of businesses are all Australian. So we kind of see ourselves as an Aussie business, to, to be honest, even though we sort of started over in Hong Kong and now we're global. But, you know, we're sort of an Aussie crypto firm, you know, DNA level. Most of the staff come from similar backgrounds to myself, worked in banking, worked in Aussie banks, whether that's the front office or tech, tech part. So we, you know, from that early days, the, the founders and everyone at the firm at the moment, you know, they're really focused on bringing that sort of institutional mindset to the digital asset space. So when a client interacts with OSL, we want to give the impression that it's not OSL on the other side, it could be a big bulge bracket investment bank. And that's the kind of level of service we're going after. It's just the asset itself is not an equity or derivative or commodity or whatever it is. It's a cryptocurrency or it's a digital asset. So that's a big part of our sort of business and our USP. And we're also probably one of the few licensed firms globally. So we are the first and actually I think someone else just got it, but the first company in Hong Kong to be licensed by the SFC for type one and type seven regulated activities. So we're held to the same standards as a, a Goldman's or a JP in Hong Kong on, under that licensing regime. So the service we give our clients is, you know, obviously we aim to be of that standard, but also internally the governance, the reporting or the compliance, et cetera, et cetera, we are held to those same standards as an investment bank dealing with these activities in Hong Kong. So, you know, that's kind of a big part of what we're trying to do. So, yeah, we, we've got sort of another different products that would suit institutional investors, but the main four, I would say, prime brokerage. So think of that as similar to what you'd get at an investment bank. So, you know, market access, synthetic trading, block trades. We have like a blocks desk, electronic algorithmic asset, like um, MSET, uh, Morgan Stanley, et cetera, so electronic access to trading. So typical services a Prime would offer you. We have our own exchange, so that's a venue for trading cryptocurrencies. We have a custody offering in Hong Kong. So custody is obviously the safekeeping of these digital assets. It's like, um, was it Born Identity or James Bond or something? It's like military-grade, Faraday cage, all this sort of stuff going on. So you need to be Tom Cruise to be able to even get in there. And then when you get in there, you can't do anything, but that's our custody offering. And then we have a SaaS business, which is basically a software business where we, where we white label our tech and IP and work with institutional partners. That's really interesting because it basically sounds like you're a big investment bank, but for crypto, just to sum it up really quickly. Yeah, exactly. Or like a broker, like a well-developed, you know, 
broker that offers all these sort of institutional services. So yeah, you know, a good example would be an investment bank. You might have a um, stock borrow lend desk. We have a coin borrow lend desk where you can borrow and lend your coins. We tried to take that blueprint from investment banking, which has worked for a very long time and apply it to digital assets. Yes, that's super interesting. And I assume as we progress in the digital asset space, more firms will try and copy this mandate because it really is a growth investment at the moment. And we touched on it a little bit before, but I would love to get your views on where you see the next steps for the industry on that regulatory uncertainty, which I think may be causing a bit of an overhang on the asset class, preventing the uptake of these types of assets. Yeah, no, totally. Yeah, as I said, OSL, we've built the firm from the ground up to be a regulated entity that can, as I said, work in a regulated environment and deal with regulated counterparts. So regulation is always at the forefront of our minds and we thrive in a regulatory environment. So the interesting thing about crypto or digital assets is it's global by nature and you know it's cross-border. So you've got different jurisdictions approaching this in very different ways. So in order for like the mainstream moment to happen, you probably need from my opinion, um, you need a global synchronization of the regulation across all these different countries. So you have common standards around, you know, reporting or client segregation of assets or everything, best market practice, all this kind of stuff and investor protection. Personally, you probably need that to be in sync globally in order for things to really take off. But you see major governments around the world, including Australia, they're all working on this problem. And it's a trend that is only moving in one direction. So Australia, for example, there's a consultancy paper with the Treasury at the moment is working through the Treasury Department on how Australia should regulate digital assets. Hopefully by the end of the year, that can be firmed up and get passed as law. Maybe next year, that'd be great. And you're seeing in the US as well, everyone looks at the US in the market. So if the US can get some clarity around its regulation, that's going to probably help other countries speed up on their own, but I say Australia in itself is is doing a really good job, and it's probably a, one of the forefront pioneers, or if you want for a better word, or in sort of the regulatory space. But I'd agree with you in order to this whole space, this environment, everything to take off, and people to get more confidence in the industry and big end of town to deploy more capital. We're going to need the regulatory piece to solve, but I think it's coming in two years' time. The regulatory landscape will look very different to what it is right now. Um, as I say, all the noises seem to be promising coming from you know from what we hear and you're seeing baby steps but things moving in the right direction it's interesting when you say kind of global set of standards because we're seeing a bit of that in the esg market as well kind of global best practice or global adoption of reporting practices so it's interesting that's coming into the crypto space and probably makes sense given it as you mentioned it is very much a global pool and it's also kind of interesting in the context of you know we did see a bit of deglobalization since the pandemic with concerns around energy security and supply chain disruption. But on the other hand, we're seeing this kind of globalized adoption of regulatory standards. So it's just an interesting contrast. But taking a little bit of a different step now, we've seen quite a lot of dislocation in the crypto markets and some downward pressure on digital assets. And I guess they've kind of called into question some of the risks around solvency of some of the key market participants. So I guess, what is your view on this? And also how would OSL protect itself and its shareholders from these types of markets if you can do that? Yeah, sure. It's been an interesting couple of weeks. And I think you've seen, some people have said this is like crypto's Lehman moment, but you've also had the macro sort of picture deteriorating 
with the rate rises and and sort of supply chain issues and sort of risk has sold off and crypto's kind of got the babies in front of the bathwater. But yeah, so it's coincided with some of these companies going under. So from an OSL perspective, as I said before, the top, we run a very conservative approach to this space. So we were not impacted by any of the the tokens or companies that you may or may not have read about in the press, just because we have very prudent risk management policies and very strong KYC policies, et cetera, et cetera. So we hope to come through this sort of, I'd say a wobble, unscathed and actually much stronger. But looking through to the the market, you know, most crypto people are quite battle hardened and used to 30, 40, 50% pullbacks any one point over the last decade or so. So your typical crypto enthusiast, let's say, these kind of pullbacks and the resiliency you know, is it's in their DNA. But, you know, I say, look at the broader picture, look at the growth, look at the stuff that's happening around the regulation, you know, look at the institutional adoption and people trying to come to market and build infrastructure. I think the path is is a positive one and it's moving forward. I think this recent month or six weeks has been a bit of a bit of a temporary blip, but we and I and everyone else, we do see it as a sort of a necessary sort of evil, if want for a better word, to create stability, you know. There was a lot of leverage in the system. It's now been flushed out. People are going to take KYC and risk a lot more sensibly and be more prudent around those things. And hopefully the industry builds on this happening and comes out stronger. That's interesting that you're saying it's a very leveraged play and, and this is a reset. That's an interesting way to look at it. You know, we are still at the infant stages of these types of assets, but are there any historical patterns that you can point to that suggest how digital assets should trade through a cycle? You know, initially Bitcoin was potentially thought of as an inflation hedge, but in this highly inflationary environment, it hasn't really held up very well. So is there anything we should look to or point to on how this asset class has traded in the past? Yeah, sure. Because people when typically talk about digital assets or cryptocurrencies, Bitcoin's probably the main one you look at. It's the longest serving and it's half of the whole entire market cap. So it's right to look at Bitcoin. But um, it's still relatively young, just over a decade old now. Bitcoin, the Genesis block came out. And so you compare that to other assets, it's really like the the baby in, in the classroom kind of thing. But they're all still finding their feet. You know, even Ethereum, you know, it's probably the most popular smart contract platform. But again, it's, you know, half a decade or more, it's like give or take old. So it's very, very young. And these things sometimes do tend to trade like risk on assets and sometimes they don't. Sometimes you see Bitcoin has got like a 99% correlation with the NASDAQ and the S&P until it doesn't. And then it just does its own thing. And you're seeing that at the moment. And people do watch the correlations, the short term and long term correlations quite closely. But, you know, it will be super correlated until it's not correlated. And then the narrative changes. So, yeah, it's, it's pretty interesting. The market we are seeing at the moment in crypto does have a lot to do with what's going on with traditional markets, especially what I mentioned earlier, you know, to the equity markets, the macro environment, the central bank environment we're in, regulations come in. But yeah, I think regulation and that sort of macro will be the biggest influence on the market in the next couple of months. And the you know, crypto companies that have good corporate governance, have uh, got good risk management strategies, they've got good businesses, they're going to come out a lot stronger. And uh, we, are, you know, at OSL, we, we want to be in that basket or that category. And our philosophy remains unchanged. You know, we want to keep delivering a, a market-leading institutional service for our clients, focusing on regulatory issues, risk management, compliance, et cetera, et cetera. So, yeah, it's a funny one. 
to some, I would say, given how young this sort of this space is, it kind of flips on and off in terms of like a correlation. So it's definitely you, you can't just sort of set and forget. You have to keep an eye on things and sort of trade or risk manage or size your positions accordingly to what's going on at the time. Mark, can you talk a little bit about, you know, there's regulation into the space, increasing interest, but perhaps what also might drive a step change is entrance from other large financial institutions. But obviously, typically, given their history, that they're a little bit less willing to take on risk, particularly in this asset class. But we are seeing some financial institutions start to dip their toe in into this space. So do you think there's going to be a transformation in how these businesses are thinking about digital assets and whether you think that this will start to drive some revenue streams for the bank, potentially some additional diversification? Yeah, sure. No, and good question, because we're in a really good position to comment on this. As I've mentioned throughout this session, yeah, we're laser being focused on institutions and professional investors, etc. So some of our typical clients would be banks. And we've seen from what it was like five years ago, three years ago, two years ago, two years ago, you know, it's definitely changed. And these regulated entities are definitely coming to the market. You know, you can see this, we have a like a landmark JV with Standard Chartered in Europe. So that was formed last June in the UK under brand Zodia Markets. So that's like a watershed moment in Europe for a sort of an institutional play by a very well or a household name like Standard Chartered. And also um, prior to that, we have uh, public information. So DBS is a client of ours and we work closely with them. So we provide a lot of the exchange infrastructure that they use for their crypto offering in Singapore. So clients like this are just sort of part of sort of the roster of the top tier institutions that we work with globally. And despite the market conditions, as you say, the conversations we're having, I'm not seeing a single institution flinch at the current market conditions. You know, they're doubling down on the narrative, they're doubling down on the the build, the manpower, you know, they're coming to market and they're setting up the infrastructure to be able to do so. And even during this volatility moment, you need to see inbound inquiries from high net worth individuals, brokers, banks, fintechs, everyone else under that sort of banner. We want to sort of figure out how to enter the cryptocurrency or digital asset market. You saw last year, oh no, last month, um, JP Morgan came out and said cryptocurrencies are now their preferred alternative. You know, they had a price forecast in Bitcoin. I don't know if it would be correct or not. And you also seen these other, you know, bulge bracket investment banks all setting up digital asset research desk or a research product. It won't be long before a lot of them have trading desks. So yeah, it's one way and the horse is bolted in my view and it's only going to go in one direction. What you said around people doubling down is quite interesting because it's not necessarily what people think is going on at the moment. So it's an interesting insight that the interest is still out there with those market movements. And probably that makes sense given that, you know, they've significantly re-rated and that may make an attractive entry point or be a trading opportunity. So it's insightful to hear that people are still interested in the space and taking an opportunity while it presents itself. But taking a slightly different turn here, and this is a little bit of a selfish question because we really want to understand this, but we're hearing a lot about the metaverse. Can you please briefly explain what this is, how people might be able to get into the metaverse, how it prevents an investment opportunity, and how that kind of fits into the whole digital asset space? Yeah, sure. Bit of a buzzword, I'd say, of the last sort of six, 12 months metaverse, and it's really sort of captured public's imagination that along uh, with nfts 
I do think like the futuristic vision of the metaverse does seem to be like a utopian digital world. And I don't know if you've seen the movie Ready Player One by Steven Spielberg, but that's, I think that's what most people would like to think or envision the metaverse to be. You know, you can get in your unicorn suit and ride on a spaceship to some far galaxy to trade, you know, and eat in some cafe or some whatever it might be. But um, I think in reality, the metaverse at the moment, there's people trying to build things like that, of course. But in reality, any sort of digital realm or interface or social network where people spend their time electronically. So a good example of that could be on Twitter, if you're on Twitter all day or Instagram all day. In a sense, you're in a digital network, right? You're in a digital world. You're not in the real world at that point. You're not present. Your focus and your attention and your time and your value propositions are all directed towards that thing, right? So in a sense, these are the original metaverses and computer games as well as a good example, where if you're playing Fortnite or Call of Duty online or whatever it is, that is a sort of metaverse as well, right? You're there, you're interacting, you're talking to friends, you're spending time away from the real world. And what's quite funny is this younger generation, actually, they spend so much of their time in this digital realm that they did now there's like acronyms in real life, like IRL, quote unquote, like that means they separate their online world from the physical. So it's pretty exciting. It's definitely a generational, bit of a generational divide because you probably got people over 14, or if you're in 14, you might have some kids who are playing around, you kind of get it. But if you're sort of 50 and above, then you might be like, I don't get this because it's not native to that demographic to be interacting. But if you're 20s or younger, then it's, of course, you spend so much of your time online, right? So there's companies now that are building these virtual worlds and there's some of them being built on the blockchain. And there's famous ones like Sandbox. I think HSBC launched a branch on Sandbox recently. Snoop Dogg held a concert. These are, this is a virtual world that you can go and hang out in and it's built with blockchain technology. But yeah, so there's what's reality right now and it's kind of some of the graphics aren't great in the ones that are trying to be the metaverse is obviously the gaming industry. But what I really think is over the next few years, you'll see an explosion in this sort of like the intersection of gaming, VR, cryptocurrencies, the entertainment industry, retail, yeah, luxury brands down to your Woolworths or your, you know, supermarket all colliding into this metaverse and it will be augmented reality will be part of that as well. So yeah, metaverse is everything that's not in real life. But yeah, how it unravels would be interesting. But yeah, it's pretty exciting to see what's going on at the moment. I'm so curious to see if I will be involved in the metaverse at some stage because I don't think I've gamed since Sims back in 2008. So it would be interesting to see if it becomes, you know, intertwined into daily life because I'm definitely not a gamer, but I'm sure there's plenty of people out there who are, which presents a great investment opportunity. But at the moment, there's definitely still a segregation between real life and virtual worlds. Yeah. Some are saying like the metaverse is the next. And there's, I, I don't have the quotes on me. I can forward them to you for your show notes. But quite a few people come out in the last year or so saying the metaverse is like the next trillion dollar opportunity. Like the GDP of the metaverse is going to surpass many like in real life countries. It's quite crazy. Yeah, that's fascinating. So then again, turning back to my favorite topic on ESG and sustainability, obviously the blockchain in which Bitcoin is founded on is quite energy intensive too because you have to mine those Bitcoins and that uses a lot of energy. Typically that energy source is coming from traditional energy sources, not necessarily renewables. 
how can we address this issue with digital assets? And is it across all digital assets? Because I know that there's some cryptocurrencies that are more energy efficient, but also any other sustainability issues that we maybe should be thinking about when investing in this asset class? Yeah, it's it's a valid question. It's got a bit of press this year. I'd say for your listeners who maybe not super familiar with crypto, just to uh, digital assets, just give them a bit of a primer. So in cryptocurrencies or crypto technology or cryptography technology, blockchain technology, in essence, there's two main types of blockchains. And the technical term is like the consensus mechanism. So how do you arrive at the next block, right? How do you all get agree on what the next block is going to be? Because that's what the blockchain is. It's just like a ledger that's continued to create new blocks with new information. You can see the historical and it's moving forward in time kind of thing. So there's two types of consensus mechanisms, proof of stake and proof of work. So proof of work is what Bitcoin is based upon and essentially requires uh, computing power to solve a really hard algorithmic problem to complete the next block cycle. And then the miners, the guys doing this, and they get the Bitcoin as a reward for their efforts, right? Now, proof of stake is what got a lot of traction, greener publicity, let's say, in the last year or so. And it's what Ethereum has been moving over towards and a lot of the other sort of layer ones are using. And this is a different way of doing things, but you you don't need to create this or have this algorithmic problem or this proof of work. What you do is you have your assets on the network, you stake them, there's an algorithm that decides, but essentially by pledging these assets back to the network, you have like a right to the next block or, va- or you know, validate what the next block will be like. So it doesn't require that computing power, that intensity. So a lot of people have started to come out and say, you know, what is the carbon footprint of Bitcoin mining and things like this? Given you said, like the, a lot of the, the main input is electricity and that's got to come from somewhere. Now, I don't think anyone's really done the maths or the analysis in it to a level where you could say one way or another this is like the carbon footprint or this is the impact there's so many different variables but what you have seen is as a result of this you're seeing a lot of sort of new businesses come out with sort of a green bitcoin mining angle to things so trying to get their electricity from renewable sources so whether that's like geothermal solar hydro you're seeing a lot of these companies set up there's a couple in australia you're seeing a few in like british columbia is a big in Canada is an area of a lot of them. And obviously, if you can mine from a sustainable energy source, you know, obviously that's going to be better, right? So I think that's definitely a trend, and that's a trend like I personally welcome. And it's interesting, you know, as you saw with your ESG hat on, blockchain technology is actually now being a lot of people, and there's a lot of Aussie companies doing this, um, trying to come up with using the blockchain to tokenize carbon. So you can have a carbon credit, and you can have that, that immutability, as in, a lot of people are sort of skeptical in the market about carbon credits and the origination when they retired and the people rehypothecating and there's some are like valid in one country and not another and it can be quite ambiguous between different regions and domiciles etc so i think blockchain technology and digital asset technology etc can be quite interesting for this space because you can have this like permanent record of this carbon credit that exists on the blockchain and when it's retired it's gone and you know where it's come from etc cetera, etc cetera. so i think you're going to see an explosion in this stuff and you're going to see new venues come up and a big drive in this industry towards those kind of technologies i'd also say as well like osl it's like dear to our hearts a lot of our founders take really passionate about carbon impact and you know climate etc cetera, etc cetera. so as a company we've got high energy use you know we've got servers etc cetera, etc cetera, running 
globally, we're really big on like net zero, like supply chains, et cetera. So, you know, we were one of the first to um, publicly come out with like a carbon neutral footprint in 2020. We fully offset all our carbon footprints, like 28, like for the three years prior. And we've sort of retroactively looking to forward neutralize that as well. So we have an ESG report online. I can put in your show notes as well. But like, so it is a big topic. I don't think it's like black and white on this is bad, this is good. But I definitely think as an industry, people are taking it seriously and trying to sort of move in sort of the healthier or sensible direction by, you know, if you can mine with renewable energy sources, probably superior to not, right? So yeah, it's definitely interesting. But as again, the industry itself is quite new. This is quite a new topic in a new industry. So there's going to be a heaps of involvement and development and progress, I would say, over the next couple of years because a lot of people are working on this stuff. So it's quite exciting as well. I think that's key that there is going to be so much development in both of those spaces in the next 10 to 20 years. I mean, ESG is obviously at the forefront of most investors' minds these days, and I'm sure it's also going to apply to this asset class and trend as well. So before we finish off this episode, Mark, I know you've had quite an interesting career change recently from a large investment bank to working at digital assets. What made you want to do the switch and how did you become so passionate about this area? Yeah, sure. Crypto is definitely like a bug that gets you. It doesn't. Once it gets you, it's hard to know what life was like before. But yeah, I started the journey pretty long ago. Like I think it was about 2011. I came across Bitcoin and it was traded about 30 bucks or something like that. And that was sort of around the time when a lot of the early exchanges were being formed. And I was lucky because I was in Hong Kong and it was kind of a hotbed for this stuff. So a lot of friends went on to found like successful exchanges and things like that. So I kind of always kept an eye on it. Unfortunately, I sold most of my Bitcoin a long, long, long time ago. And that's probably why I'm still, you know, not financially <laughs> independent. Yeah, I remember when it got to 100 and I was like, oh, God, that's crazy. But um, yeah, look at us now. And I'd always kept an eye on it. I kind of missed Ethereum, like when Ethereum still first came out, busy with career and life and family and stuff like that. But 2020, summer 2020 was like known as DeFi summer. And that was basically when you saw a lot of new applications being built on Ethereum. And a lot of them had like a a financial sort of DNA to them. So like lending platforms, trading platforms, and all this kind of thing was DeFi summer. They were doing really cool stuff that probably people hadn't seen before. And then fast forward to last year, you saw a lot of these alternative layer ones come about like Solana, Terra, Avalanche, things like this. And they're trying to take what Ethereum had done and take it one step further. And it was really exciting times. And I'm a bit of a geek. You know, I come from a different background. I like technology, et cetera. And it's just really captured my imagination. So this was all against like the backdrop of COVID. And we saw record stimulus packages being deployed by you know major governments around the world and so that really accelerated accelerated the digitization of our lives and because people were spending more and more time online before. So I just thought it was an opportune time to move over. You know, I really enjoyed my time at MS and got to work with some great people and um, on some really interesting projects. But, you know, I'm quite entrepreneurial by nature and just wanted a new challenge. Also one where I had more sort of involvement across every facet of the business. So, like, yeah, luckily I managed to figure things out with our CEO, Wayne Trench, and my boss, Matt Long, up in Hong Kong and Singapore, and we got all the stars aligned. And yeah, that was it. The rest is history. That's awesome. And you've obviously had quite an interesting career. I'm sure there's a lot of people in investment banks who are looking for something a little bit more entrepreneurial or um, to do something a little bit different in an alternative asset class. So we would be really interested to hear about your top career tip that you could share with us, please. 
Yeah, sure. And as Clooney probably knows from my time at MS, I really used to enjoy like mentoring or trying to not even mentor is probably too strong a word, but get involved with like the junior guys and try and help out where I can. And, you know, I had a quite really lucky or really fortunate to have a really interesting career. And I always tell people the same thing. It's like, whatever job you are at right now, you got to give 110, 120%. You got to give it your all, even if it's not exactly what you want to be doing. Because if you're not giving your all, then you can't put yourself in a position to have conversations about, you know, mobility or things like that because people won't take you seriously. So first thing, whatever you're doing, just do it as best as you can. Leave everything at the desk at the end of the day, put everything into it. So that's the first thing. Then you've got to network. You've got to network as, as much as you can any given opportunity because you just don't realize when you're going to bump into these people again or these opportunities are going to arise. So like the old saying that like, you make your own luck, that often comes from networking. Then be polite and as easy to work with as possible. Like be the person people want to have a beer with or go and get a coffee with. Don't be the person people try and avoid because you spend so much time with these people during the day so if you're nicer to be around, people want to spend more time with you, which invariably means you stick around like longer and get the opportunities when they come. So if you do all the above, then I think you can put yourself in a position to be, don't be afraid to ask for what you want, but only do so when you really put everything in, giving it your all, seized every opportunity. And then if you you feel like you've got like the collateral or the sort of the leverage on your side, then don't be afraid to put your hand up and ask for a change, whether that's overseas or internally or do something different different like if you don't ask you'll never get but you got to sort of earn the right to ask so I would say that's my top career tip that's awesome thanks Mark I've really learned so much throughout this episode and I know that our listeners will as well we can't wait to see what the future brings for both yourself and OSL and as we've really touched on many times in this episode it's clearly an area for investment that is still in its infancy but really taking off at a j-curve speed And I think we've recorded this episode in the metaverse to a degree, given we're all electronically recording from our geographical distances, but hopefully next time we can chat IRL. So thank you so much for coming on the show, Mark. It was great to chat and can't wait to speak again soon. Awesome. Great to chat and thanks for having me on. Thank you for listening to the Alpha Females Invest podcast. If you like this episode, we would love your support on Instagram. You can find us at Alpha Females Invest. You could also leave a podcast review, but most importantly, please keep listening. See you next time.